Hi, guys. This is Morgan Weiss at Sunnybrook with Consider This Podcast. Um, I'm here with Ryan, Vincent, and Justin Ebert. Um, We're doing a podcast on communion that took longer than we thought, so there will be a second episode to this. Um, But we're walking through just questions we have heard from our people about communion. And honestly, I want to understand it better. So I'm just throwing questions at them about, um, like, how was communion first initiated? Uh, What's the purpose? Can or should a person take communion if they aren't baptized? Are you required to take it when you're offered if you're a believer? What does 1 Corinthians 11 actually say and mean for the believer in this context of a communion? So we would love for you to join us. Um, if you're interested in that, here we go. Communion is the topic of the morning. Our life group, actually, this was kind of spurred on. Our life group started talking a lot about communion. Um, and then I've realized just our residents um, do like some statement of faith things um, and they have to address this issue of communion. They started asking me questions. Um, and then I just started asking people around our church, what do you think about communion? And it seems like there were just a lot of questions. So I just tried to ask a bunch of questions and or ask them to give me a bunch of their questions. And I thought I'd just throw those out today to Ryan and Justin and see what they can come up with. So we're just going to launch into this. How was communion first um, initiated? First, how did it first come about? This is something that we have evidence for in Scripture and and that kind of thing, but tying it to the Passover and the Last Supper. Yep. So the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a Last Supper story where Jesus um, institutes the meal. Um, So, And then in some sense commands that this is to to continue on. we see it in we see it practiced by the first church immediately after Pentecost. We see it in Acts twenty, where Paul is um, is um, sharing a meal with with the local church there in, in Ephesus, and he um, it, it even mentions that as they were gathering, they they did this regularly again, kind of following the, the Acts two pattern. So it's commanded by Jesus. The church adopts it immediately, and it is and it is done with great frequency. So that's that's kind of the initial. Where did it come from? But if you sit and 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 you look at kind of the Old Testament underpinnings of right. what is Jesus actually doing, um, you have to remember he's he's establishing a new practice in a Hebrew context where this is a society that, for all of their history and even going beyond the the New Testament. They um, they expressed association with one another and acceptance of one another through shared table fellowship. So to even create this this rite, this sacrament, which we'll talk about more here in a little bit, in the context of a meal, starts to bring in associations with accepting one another as as being family or familial or socially on par with one another. Um, and then, so I mentioned the, the three synoptic gospels. John doesn't talk about the institution of this in that sense. Most of the time when we talk about John's institution of this particular meal, it's in the bread of life sermon, um, in John chapter six, where Jesus is, um, is basically talking about his body and his blood as something that is to be consumed. And that for those who do this, eternal life is found in that. So there's this sustenance nature. Um, so you bring all that together and you do it in the context of the Passover. Um, this is a, a yearly meal that Hebrew families were to share. 
And the the overarching idea of the meal is that the, the head of the household, the father, would recount the Exodus story. He would tell it. He'd even in some sense act it out. It's very... Um, it's a very embodied meal. There's lots of steps and rituals b- uh, baked within. But the idea is that it's to remember how God delivered us in the past and to request God now, as we celebrate the Passover, to continue to show his favor and his deliverance on us in the future. So you take that, Jesus takes that, and he basically um, takes the Exodus account, substitutes the, his work on the cross, and now this is how God delivers us. Do this in remembrance of me, and then it happens. And so the, the earliest church there, they start to practice this as a kind of, a lot of times I'll describe it as a reconstituted Passover meal, remembering how God has delivered us in the past through Christ's saving work on the cross and asking him to continue doing so in the future until we get to share in the great final end times meal, the great wedding feast of the Lamb. So that's kind of its its biblical origins. You could even pull in some stuff from like Leviticus chapter 7, where there is a one of the sacrifices, usually you go to the, to the, the priests or the tabernacle or the temple and you offer sacrifices and it's consumed, it's burned up. Part of it goes to the priest and it's just you giving God something. But there is a fellowship offering, a peace offering, where you bring your offering, It's part of it's burned, part of it's given to the priest, and then part of it is returned to you as God's sign of his acceptance and provision. So you kind of share a meal with God. All those themes come flying through Jesus establishing this meal prior to his, um, his crucifixion. And then we see the earliest church in the book of Acts continue to celebrate this. So, And it just develops on from there, which Justin, I know you've done a lot of work looking at how this continues to develop historically. That's another interesting part of it because it doesn't, there's not one way it, it immediately starts to take streams. Mm-hmm. I mean, because there's not like a clear, um, this is how and when and what it means uh, to some of the specific details that churches or theologians would take it. Um, there, there seems to be a little bit of freedom as to how often you take it. There seems to be a little bit of freedom to, are you allowed to have more than one cup? as you take communion or does it have to be one loaf because we are one body? And, um, that, those are some of the questions that they were asking Who, who's allowed to take it, which I think is something we hopefully will talk about. Oh yeah. So yeah, I mean, we can, we, I think we'll get through some of those historical developments as we go on, but it, that's been pretty fascinating to see yeah. how people have kind of interpreted these instructions from the Lord that we have. One big difference just to think through as we carry on through this particular uh, podcast, when, when Jesus inaugurated it, it was at the end of a full meal. Mm-hmm. And that's by and large how the early church in Acts celebrated it. It wasn't, you know, sing, preach, sing, sing, take a cup and a little bite of bread, pray, and we're out of here. It was a meal. And that's not what we experience today. So as we continue this conversation, hopefully we can even talk about why it differs now from the way that it was originally designed and why that may not be the worst thing in the world. So when you say kind of the, I'm going to understand you, the purpose of it then is to remember how it can coincide with the Passover a little bit is to remember how God has provided for us ultimately in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and then trusting that he will come again. So whenever in scripture, when it says that when we take this cup, 
we are proclaim when we share this meal, we are proclaiming his death until he returns. Is that what that's referring to? Mm-hmm. It's an act of, okay. I, I like your words, remembering and trusting. I think those are really good. So what do we remember about Christ's death in terms of what it created? And what are we trusting the, the acceptance of that sacrifice to provide in the future? And that's the question Paul's bringing up in First Corinthians right. 11. So you, you think of the purpose question. Um, I think looking back is a, is a key part of it. It's, it's a, a, a key part of it. Uh, Zwingli, one of the reformers, said that that's the primary purpose of the meal, is to, is to look back, is to remember. That this was an act of memorial, actually. Alexander Campbell, that's kind of how he leaned to. This, this was something for us to, on a regular basis, look back on what God has done through his people over time. So yeah, how he's delivered them from Egypt, how he's created a sacrificial system for them to have communion with him, how he sent the person of Jesus to actually be a fulfillment of that and then instituted this meal, which his people were to practice on a regular basis. So yeah, looking back on the remembrance is, is key. And even I would say, now looking back on your baptism, so look mm-hmm. back on what you've committed to is a is a good part of, mm-hmm. of that. But I would say that's not like the only purpose. And that's mm-hmm. actually been like part of the big debate is, is what's happening in communion leads into what's the purpose of, or maybe vice versa, I don't know. So like the Catholics, they would say it's the actual, as soon as the priest lifts up the bread and the wine, it becomes the actual blood and body of Jesus. And so they literally, literally like the actual body and blood of Jesus. And they believe you have to continue to take this meal in order to receive continuing this grace of God. So it's almost like, Mm. you know, we wouldn't do that. One of the primary reasons we wouldn't do that is Hebrews nine says we we can't over and over again, sacrifice Jesus. That's not something we have can do. And it's not something we need to do. Actually, Jesus has already paid for sins. He's already extended that grace to you. When you put your faith in him, you attach yourself to that work, right? And baptism is the, is the symbol of that, a mysterious, beautiful symbol of that. Um, the Lutherans, who were kind of reacting to the Catholics, were like, well, it's not quite that, but there is something, there is something happening here where Christ's body coexists with the elements. It's like in, around, under, consubstantiating this meal and so there's there's it's not quite exactly but it's almost like the illustration i've heard is like sponge and water mm. kind of don't have one without the other a little mm. bit then it was wingley and it was others who said it was just a memorial that i would guess for a lot of our people that's kind of where they leave it it's just something to remember jesus's death and resurrection which is a good thing right, right. sometimes we would say like look back on your on your life and is there sin you need to repent of sure yeah. Um, the, the, the last one is like Calvin probably is the champion of this. Um, I think the Anglicans practice this is like a spiritual, there's something mysterious and spiritual going on. So like with our union with Jesus, it's like, he's almost raising us up. And so it's not just remembering, but there's some unique thing that's happening here where we get to be unified in the presence of the Lord, not as if he wasn't there before. And then now he is, but there's, there's some kind of beautiful, intimate, special thing, spiritual thing that's happening in this meal that we may not fully understand, but 
this is more than just a mental exercise to look back. A good analog to that position is how many of us consider baptism to be more than just a bath. Mm -hmm. There's something mystical and special happening when people are baptized. So um, while we wouldn't say that the body um, and the blood of Jesus are physically contained in the cup and in the bread, neither would we say that the, the waters in our baptistry contain the dirt that surrounded Jesus's tomb. And yet there is some mystical thing taking place when someone submits to death and resurrection in the baptistry. And there is something special likewise happening when someone uh, partakes of the body and the blood of Christ. So, but actually I don't think most people around here can look at it like that. I think they look at it more like Justin's described as a memorial as like considered like the American flag. It's not made of special ink. It's not made of special fabric. But whenever it's put together and revered as a flag, it is now something that symbolizes something important to us. There's nothing inherently special about its juice and yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So that's how most people. Yeah, would and in, in that sense, I can respect like the heart of the Catholic who really reveres this. Mm-hmm. You know that that is the main point of their service, and there's no if and or buts about that. And, and mm-hmm. I I appreciate that. You know, yeah. I, I can appreciate how serious they take the mass is what they, you know, the, the communion we would call it. And I, I'm okay. I, I like that. I think we could do more to be more reverent about it individually or maybe communally, but um, I, I can appreciate that at least. Yeah. I know you have some like practical outworkings of these type, uh, this, this theology type questions, but just before we move on, I want to just briefly mention um, one of the best ways to study this. And, and this is really on my mind having just um, finished up end of year um, statements of faith evaluations with Justin and our, um, our four residents is one of the things that becomes abundantly obvious is the best way to talk about this is to keep your nose in the scriptures, like keep yeah. your head down and read the texts. Yeah. So here are some things that in some of the major um, passages that I observe um, to be the purpose behind communion. First of all, it's the memorial, the remembrance that Justin's described. In 1 Corinthians 11, Morgan, you've already mentioned um, Paul says, we do this in remembrance of, he's quoting Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. I think that another purpose is communion with God and with one another. Um, in 1 Corinthians 10, it talks about us taking this meal and we become one, we who are many become one body. There's this mm-hmm. um, almost horizontal communion. Which that reminds me of Jesus's prayer in John 17, when he is praying to the father and says, just as we are one, let these people be one. And yes. there's something really, I believe, mysterious and transcendent that's going on. Yes, and Paul seems to pull that thread through to the Lord's table. Um, And um, so there's communion with one another, communion with God. I believe that when we take the meal, we are, are in in some sense, I know most of us just do it in a pew, but imagine we were coming to a communion table. It's like a table of mercy. Um, In Matthew's gospel, um, Jesus emphasized that the, the cup represents the um, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He emphasizes the forgiveness aspect. Mark emphasizes that it's the blood of the covenant. So I, I kind of think of this as, um, a, mm. in some sense, renewing our baptismal vows every week. Mm. How are we um, initiated into the covenantal community of faith through the waters of baptism? Um, Luke talks about his, his emphasis when Jesus is, is, is initiating this meal is that it, this is something that is to stand in place until the kingdom of God comes. 
So it has this note of hope in the eschaton, in the end of time. Um, John 6, we already talked about, it seems to provide spiritual nourishment. Ask me how, I don't know. That's just what Jesus said. <laughs> um, and then in Acts 2, when the, the first church is taking this meal together, it says that they did so with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And it's that joy and that happiness that surrounded the meal that led to the term Eucharist, which is just Thanksgiving. That's all it means, hmm. is it's a meal of Thanksgiving. So I, there's not one thing that the Lord's Supper is designed to do. It's got so many rich biblical themes woven mm-hmm. through it that I'm almost overwhelmed by it. Mm. And again, like Justin, I understand why many traditions make this the focal point of their worship. Yeah, it, it's it's one of the reasons it's like communion isn't just supposed to be somber. Mm-hmm. We, we almost try to turn it into this like individual, me and Jesus, I got to really sit and reflect. I think there's an element of that that's great. But if that is the one view, I can understand why you're like, why do we have to do this all the time? Yeah, you know, it feels of, like whipping yourself over yeah, and over. It's like, well, didn't Jesus already like, we're good. I'm good with Jesus, right? So why do I have to act like I'm not? You know, mm-hmm. I, I can understand why some people would be like, I'm okay not taking that every week. Yeah. But when you see it as like this opportunity to have some kind of beautiful union with the Lord and his people, an opportunity to celebrate and be grateful for and as like a catalyst for joy as we look ahead to what is to come and back to what's already been done, that, I mean, that to me becomes more full. Yeah. You know, it's as we look back, as we look around, as we look ahead, it, it becomes richer and it becomes deeper. And, you know, it's always, I, I think about the, do I have to go to church if I'm a Christian? It's like, why would you not want to? <laughs> yeah. If you know what the church is and what it's meant to be, why would you not want to be part of God's body and people in this way? Um, it's the same thing. It's like, why, why would you not want to have this opportunity to partake in something that the Lord himself instituted and that, you know, the Bible seems to hold up very highly and as like this cool, spiritually rich, mysterious opportunity for us to uh, be in fellowship with each other and with the Lord. I, I don't know why you wouldn't want to. And yeah. that, I think there are reasons why you shouldn't. Yeah. But to why you wouldn't want to take this every Sunday, that part I don't get. You know, my mother-in-law has said for years that whenever she passes away, she was she doesn't want her funeral to be sad. She wants it to be a party because of where she is after she passes. She's like, I'm with Jesus. And I think it's that same dichotomy. We 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 can only know to be like sober about it or to to think that being exuberant during this meal is to is to kind of betray its its tone, mm-hmm. no, be, somehow be disrespectful. Yeah, yeah. I um, another when you said go look to the scriptures and Justin was referring to um, like kind of how it was all all came together and and all these things. The I I would also say what Justin was saying about remembering and reflecting, he mentioned there's a personal aspect of that. And then there's also another, another thing that if you really want to grow in your understanding of some of these rich themes and purpose is to read Exodus that they mentioned Mm -hmm. to read um, Leviticus. Yes. Leviticus um, to read how, how the Lord brought his people out of Egypt 
and then how this was instituted and why. And he commands them to do this every year. And he commands it to be done in a specific way. And then go read Hebrews and see how he fulfills so many of these Old Testament way of doing things, how Jesus comes and fulfills them. And that brings about a gratitude when you're sitting there holding the elements, not just of you died in my place for my sin, but a, wow, you have fulfilled um, a promise you made Mm -hmm. thousands of years ago. Um, I can recount, sometimes when I'm holding the elements, I I, I find myself just recounting his faithfulness um, that I see biblically, not just he's been faithful to me to provide for me, but but like over a lo- a larger lifespan than myself his goodness and his faithfulness yes you're you're being attached to a story like if you want to get creative about this artsy about this and like right. poetic <laughs> about this i do i like that kind yeah, of stuff yeah you're 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 being attached to a story that's far greater than you it's it's right. it's it's like this eternal plan of god is coming into a moment <laughs> Yeah. And you're like saying, I participate in this yeah. and, and I'm part of this. And the God who made me and the God who makes promises and the God who fulfills those promises, I'm somehow part of that story now. Yeah. And, and communion reminds us of that and in some way brings us into that on a weekly basis, which is so cool. Such yeah. a cool thing to think about. I, so I want to ask this next question. I said, you mentioned baptism inaugurating you into the family of God. You mentioned remembering your own story um, and coming to the faith. I know what you're about to say. Um, I, when I was a children's minister, this is when I first started thinking mm. about this. Uh, because when you are helping children in this moment of baptism, or of baptism, of communion, you have to figure out a way to explain what this is. Every kid in the room will pretty much say they follow Jesus, whether or not they've made a commitment to him, because this mm-hmm. is what children do. If their families say we're OSU fans, children say they're OSU fans. If their families say we follow Jesus, they say we follow Jesus. And so you're trying to figure out a way to keep, you know, every kid from rushing the stage and getting their little <laughs> juice and um They and understand bread. the celebration. They they're ready to the celebration. roll. Yes. Um, so you're trying to figure out a way to disting- distinguish between that. But I remember at one point, I don't know if this is a fatal mistake or not, but at one point I I was saying, if you have given your life to Jesus, you try to be careful. And I and I said through baptism, and there were a handful of kids, and I don't even remember which families these are from, so I'm not throwing you under the bus. I promise. I don't. I just remember that certain kids came up the next week and said, my parents told me I could take communion even though I'm not baptized. And so then I switched it to like, unless your parents have said. And I was like, I got to do this better. I can't just say, unless you've been baptized or your parents said, okay, so if you've given your life to Jesus, but every kid in there thinks I've given my life to Jesus, you know? So you're trying to figure out how to talk about it. So here's my question. Can or should a person take communion if they are not baptized? Yes or no. Everyone go around the table, then we'll talk about it more. Yes or no, Morgan? Would you you do Um, what you did back then still? Or yes or no? I would say on occasion. Okay. But I would say no, not weekly, no. I used to be yes, now I'm no. I'm a soft noist. <laughs> yeah, this is what I mean by on occasion. We did like a, uh, we've done before like um, a Good Friday service and we said families can partake in this together. Mm-hmm. Like that's what I mean by on occasion. Mm-hmm. I mean like there might be a special circumstance, mm-hmm. but I, yeah, I, 
I, yeah, I don't, and I don't I, know if it's so black and white. I, I don't know. know but I know. I, would like I, know. To I am know. theologically and biblically a no. <laughs> take, and take, then, yes, take take the like the act of baptism off the off the table. If to celebrate the the meal is to remember what God has done for you, and to trust Him to continue to do that for you in the future, then what's your answer? Well, is baptism essential to your faith? Only biblically. <laughs> <laughs> I, or essential to salvation. Sorry, essential only to salvation. biblically. Well, does no. The, does God baptism see the, is not essential to salvation? I think normatively, yeah, it is. I think yes, if you're dying on a cross, I do too. or in a hospital bed and you right. receive the Lord, or I, at that, birth, I think, is, is obedience birth. is obedience to Jesus essential to salvation? I would say yes. So yeah, well, well, but you can yes. disobey His yes. command to be yes. baptized. Mm, no, I would say <laughs> I would say what what Justin said normatively. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So we all yeah. know you that have there's like an exception. There's always an exception, yeah. but that is the 99.9 percent of people aren't the exception. The right. exception is the guy dying on the cross next to Jesus, and yeah. the lady who is coming to faith at a gospel proclamation on her deathbed, realizing like, "Crud, I was a horrible human, and I should need Jesus." Right. Or guy dying on a battlefield. Like, right. we all get that. Yeah. Right. We also get the other side of it. This is now a baptism podcast. Um, uh, we also get the other oh, side you, of it. We tied them together. We have. You have to tie them together. Rightly. I think rightly. I think, think Jesus may have tied them together. Exactly. Um, the other side of it is we all know baptism is just a bath if it's separated from faith. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. we all, whether you're Protestant or I would say this will get me in trouble, maybe whether you're Protestant, Catholic, whether you're reformed or not reformed, we all believe you have to have faith in order to have a right relationship with God. Yep. Like that's Jews believe that. <laughs> yeah. That's not unique. And so then how does that thing work out? Well, as Jesus commands, as the book of Acts shows, as Peter and Paul command baptism is a natural, normative, expected, commanded next step for the believer. Yep. And it's always tied together. So let us not be so foolish as to do something the Bible doesn't do and make baptism competing with something like faith yep. and something like salvation. It doesn't need to compete because biblically it doesn't compete. We, even Peter says baptism, which now saves you, is more than just a washing of water. If you just get a bath, you're not saved. Apart from faith, you are not saved. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, so let's, we're there. I think we all agree yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the question of who can take baptism. So Communion. In, who can, who take, can take baptism? Who can the take faithful can take the baptism. <laughs> um, sorry, babies. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, there you go. Um, who can take communion? So Alexander Campbell, this was a big thing as they were coming out of the Presbyterian movement. So the mm -hmm. Presbyterians got crazy. So you had to be like an old light or a new light. You had to be either seceder or non-seceder. You had to be anti-burger or burger, right? You, and depending on what you chose, which version of Presbyterian, like you couldn't go to another Presbyterian church and take communion. One of my biggest frustrations with the Catholic Church is that Elder Jimmy Hill can't walk in there and take communion because he's not a Catholic. Right. I, th I find that incredibly offensive. I will never become a Catholic for that reason alone. I, I can't do I, I find that highly offensive. There's one pastor at this church, not named me, that Who snuck definitely in there? took communion snuck in on there? Ash Wednesday there, and I, I was think, laughing all the way back down the aisle. Well, the Catholics may not have accepted it, I think the Lord did. Um, <laughs> so here's the deal. Um, Alexander Campbell wrestled with this a lot. The other guys who were leading the, the movement wrestled with this a lot. Who can take it? Is it going to be an open table or a closed table? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was um, and, along denominational lines. Mm -hmm. And so what they wanted to be is like, no, we want Christians 
to be able to take communion. So whether you come from this denomination or that denomination, we don't care your political affiliation. We don't care your denominational, your national ethnic background. If you put your faith in Jesus, you can share communion with us. And that was a big deal. And people really attached to that. And then the question came up. So what about the pious unimmersed? Is their phrase hmm. so like essentially people, those who have not yes. been mm-hmm. baptized or yep. faithful that were baptized as infants and are sprinkled mm-hmm. okay and so also th- included in that mm-hmm. they there wasn't necessarily a, a consensus on this right and so the, the reason we're going to come to and we're going to give what we think there wasn't a great conclusion on this so what th- a lot of them landed on is we're not going to invite them but we may not also like Keep ask every it. ask everyone who's coming up like have you been baptized okay good have you been baptized okay good does that make sense mm-hmm. so when yep. they say hey now is our time to celebrate the lord's table those of you who have put your faith in jesus come forward and we will celebrate this together yep. or let's pass the bread around and the cup around is actually what they started with cup of wine by the way um we'll talk about that later um uh they they didn't necessarily hold a fence up to what denomination you're from, have you been baptized or not. They they did kind of leave that to themselves. Yeah. The only people they would actively um, they would actively reject would be somebody who's from that church who is in discipline and unrepentant sin. Yeah. Does that make sense? So yeah. you could you could excuse yourself if you believed there was a reason you shouldn't take it or you know, you you acknowledge their stance of you should be baptized because that's how you kind of you're initiated into into the faith, mm-hmm. um, but they wouldn't necessarily hold, ask you a series of questions before you came and took it. Okay. So how that works out here at Sunnybrook is like we have we have you know I do a lot of stuff with our our incoming membership classes. We have a lot of people who join this church who come from traditions or were raised in a tradition where they were baptized as children, and they are not convinced by our appeal that they should be baptized as a confessing adults, and we still allow them to join. So we, we put that as like a second tier issue. Um, we, we never concede the point, but we say you, you're still in the, in the spirit of the restoration, you're still a brother or sister in Christ. Um, that is a, that is a point on which we, we might disagree. However, are you, we would call them the pious, but unimmersed. Yeah. But but in the sense of, they're not saying I'm not, I'm not going to be baptized. They're saying I I, was baptized. So they really aren't saying, I don't care what you say and what Jesus says. They're just saying like, well, I interpret that differently. They're defining it a little differently. And those people, we gladly serve them communion. We gladly. While still trying to convince them behind the scenes, like, actually, I think you should put your faith in Jesus. hundred percent. Hundred yeah. percent. Okay. We've had those conversations. We all have faces and names for that. And yeah. then and some. Some we win to our position, and others they don't. And and they're not in some second tier of fellowship with sure. us. Sure. Mm-hmm. So we we would say open table is what we see, not yep. closed table. Yep. And what we mean by open table is that all those who have put their faith in Jesus are welcome at the table. Yep. Now again, if at Good Friday service. Uh, my neighbor's family goes up there and I know for a fact their youngest kid hasn't been baptized, but I see that I'm probably not going to rush up there and smack it out of their hands and say, Dikembe says no. <laughs> okay. No, I'd like to get that on film if we could ever. There, was a, there was a distinct finger wag there. <laughs> I, I actually think that would be an incredible YouTube or whatever social media. I don't have it on. The, the next time we put someone at a church discipline, TikTok. we can do that. Oh, baby. If I was on TikTok, it would be that video. That's it. Just the one and done. Let's make that happen. Anyway, so I wouldn't do that. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of agree with Campbell on that. Like, I, I want to let this be open to all believers. And we we are going to be pretty 
we're going to side on the, uh, we're going to err on the side of compassion and let people kind of f- work that out a little bit while still teaching them behind the scenes of, I don't think you probably should do that. Why would you allow them to do that and not allow them to be baptized? That's kind of the question. Okay. And then a lot of times they're like, I guess you're right. Cause so we've had those conversations yeah. like, but it's not as flippant as, so then everybody oh, come yeah. have communion. Oh yeah. No. So we, you know, I want to stress that it's, it's, um, we, if you heard everybody, they'd say, they'd say, you know, soft no, no, was a yes, then a no on could you be not unbaptized, like not be baptized and, and take communion. And mine was an occasional, you know, very occasionally I, I would be, think that was okay. And those are all just opinions, right? Our opinions based on what we understand again in the text. And if we're, when we're studying the text, the text, if the text says something different, we are all okay to change yeah. our opinion always. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not, what we're saying is it's a re, it is a really big deal. Um, what you're doing in communion when you're saying, I, yeah, I place my faith. This is where my allegiance lies. Jesus is the boss of my life. I believe that he is God and that he has come to this earth and he has died on a cross and he has risen again. And I am joining with him on his mission. Like we believe it's a very big deal. Um, and yet we have grace with all the different nuances sure. that you were mentioning. Um, Which is cool. to wa- Like if you read through Alexander Campbell's writings and he wrote a ton Goodness gracious. I mean, talk about Alexander Hamilton writing a ton. I think Alexander Campbell wrote a ton as well. Mm-hmm. And so he's not just the leader of a movement, but he's also leading churches. And he's not just preaching sermons, but he's writing articles. He's debating. Like, he's doing crazy amounts of stuff. But you, what I love about our movement, what I love about him, as he's studying the scriptures, he literally, like, changes his mind. You don't uh, see that a lot because right. he's not attached to a systematic theology or a catechism that's been written and is the boundary line and you can't go out. It, what he does is like he tries to read the scriptures and say, "Is am I living according to this? Yep. And am I teaching according to this? Mm-hmm. And you'll see a little bit in his writing, he goes a little bit back and forth on this issue. Yep. He, sometimes he says, only the baptized can have it. Mm-hmm. But then he's like... But also, maybe sometimes the yeah. unimmersed pious can too. And then, so, then yeah. some lady writes him an article in some newspaper. Are you sure? What about this situation? He's yeah. like, well, no, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's never. Think, what do, can I ask you a question though? What do you think? Um, I, and I guess maybe we wouldn't know this answer. But if you're listening to this and this is you, please let me know what you think about this. Um, what do you think is going through the minds of, um, or why would parents say to their child, mm-hmm. "You can go ahead and take that." each week if their child has not been baptized like what what would be the point of like what do you think would be the thought process truly i don't think that a parent uh, you know i would hope a parent's not just being flippant no right oh i just want you to belong and i hate that you were left out yeah yeah, yeah. that would obviously be a dumb reason okay and and we would i think that is a reason a lot of times you do you think think that you feel or i think it's that parents haven't thought through necessarily primarily okay but i would say there i i can't imagine there's not a situation where um a parent is looking at their seven-year-old daughter who's upset because she feels like she's being left out of the cool kid club she has to just sit on her hands during communion time and it's like no like church is about including people so you go too and and i think that that is step two after not thinking about it okay i think um there's probably a lower prioritization on baptism and it comes from a theological idea rather than a biblical one. There are a lot of people who think we are way too crazy about baptism. And when I talk to those people, most times I'll say, have you done an inductive study? In other words, have you traced 
baptism through the entire New Testament, yes or no? No. All of our, their ideas are coming from a preacher that told them. Mm-hmm. And so a, a theological system, in other words. And so they're saying prior, baptism really isn't as important as you're making it, but unity in the body is important. And they do say they're believers in Jesus, and so we're good with it. So that I think there's probably some of that. It's a, it's a lower lower view of baptism as party, part of the drive there. So I think all those reasons. Maybe not thinking through it, wanting to be included, maybe placing a lower prioritization on baptism. All those things are playing into it. Okay. Okay. Um, are, so this next one I'm going to include in a couple, but are you required to take communion if you are offered mm. as a believer and follower of Jesus? You mentioned sometimes it's okay to say um, no. I think I think the answer would be: Are you required? No. I would I would also kind of go back to what you said. Why I don't? Why would you not want to? Um, so I think you know I think this question it says: Are you required? And I, I think that we should answer that, but. I do think that question specifically stems from the First Corinthians 11 material, which maybe we should read a little bit of that. I'll let you guys talk about it, and then I might read a little bit of what it says, not the whole thing. But it talks about examining yourself. And I know people that, that quote this. Jim actually brought that passage up probably three, four weeks ago um, uh, when he was talking about communion. Um, so, And I've heard you say before, Justin, mm. and then maybe went I hope back it's on good. it. I hope it's good. I, hope it's I good. think you went back on, not back on it, but um, you said, if you're not a believer, don't you dare take this. I think is what you said from the stage one time. And Oh, I, I hold but to that. that was, I know you hold for, to it, but you, yeah. may not have, you may not say it the same way. I... I wouldn't maybe say it every week like that. Yeah. But I told Ryan, um, so Augustine, uh-huh. Augustine, however you want to say it, I don't care, Augustine. Uh, what they did at their services uh-huh. is they would have a part of their service that's for anyone, and then they would literally make the non-believers leave. And there's a there's you a, could there's hear a, you could hear the sermon right. And then the the non-believers would leave, and there were things that only the believers, the initiated, the baptized, could do. Right. Right. So so here's a side note. Uh, point. Augustine believed in baptism way more than people who are uh, Augustinian slash Calvinistic slash Reformed. So just go study what Augustine thought about baptism, oh and you'll be like, dang it. You guys are right. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, okay, so 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, so, Augustine. So he <laughs> would kick people out and say, communion's part of the thing that only believers could do. So I, I, I but like... Now, but what if you're a believer? Because in 1 Corinthians 11, help me understand... These are believers, correct? But is it, but are they? And are they're they talking about self-examination? But is it self-examination it? in terms like of personal sin? Like you may have told a lie one time, or is it self-examination in terms of the disunity that you're creating as you disrespect others at this meal? Yeah. So, so the in, context. So we want to talk about the context yes, of First Corinthians eleven. Yes. So in my mind, it's what the, what's going on in, in the Corinthian church in general is they're super immature and there's a lot of issues. One of the issues is people are coming. Wine is the drink for the Lord's Supper at this time. And that people are, correct me if I'm wrong, people are essentially getting drunk and um, drinking excessively and there's none left for other people when they come in. Is that what's, ha- is that what's happening or am I off on that? No, I think you're, you're right around there. So it's, it's, it's far more of a, a unity issue and then also a stupidity sinful issue so they are drawing a line between those who have and those who have not so those who have are able to bring lots of food and wine and then they're 
creating almost like a closed table because those who didn't bring aren't participating. Yeah. And so not only are they getting drunk or maybe overindulging on food, which Paul says would not be wise or holy, but they're also creating division within their body. And those two things are are crazy to him. Yeah. How can you take this thing, which is so sacred, so holy, so given to us by the Lord, and turn it into something that's an opportunity for sin, and then also an opportunity for division? So here's what I've read one time. Not only were they getting drunk, but a lot of times when they get drunk and your inhibitions are lowered, oh yeah, the the command, which is at least six or seven times in the New Testament, greet each other with holy kiss. Holy they kiss. would start like macking out with people um, that weren't their spouse and like getting weird sexually. Yeah. So that's some of the undertones of that as well, and especially in Corinth, which literally became synonymous with like sexually yeah. immoral. So what would be a reason then if you're, if you are a follower of Jesus? Well, first of all, have you ever not taken communion? I did. On purpose? No. Uh, no. I haven't. Me I haven't. Either. But you know what? I, I bet part of that is. So, what? You really, 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 really believe in the work of Jesus. Yeah. And you are pretty intentional about reconciling when you know you're in the wrong. You're good yeah. about that. So if you, so is that why someone might choose not to, as they believe that like there's a, there's a, some sin that they're not confessing or something? I'm just mm-hmm. confused about like what would be an appropriate not taking, not participating of this. And, um, if if so, on the on on one on the one side, I, I I've heard people say, you know, I'm I'm concerned about some um, latent sinfulness in me that I, you know, I just can't be sure that I've repented of everything, and so there's this nervous guilt about them that they just don't want to take it in an unworthy manner. And I would say, well, let's go back to <laughs> Jesus says that I like I give you this. Because I'm like, this is my blood, which has been given for the forgiveness of sins. Like it's a table of mercy. So in my mind, I'm, if I'm ridden with guilt and not in an unrepentant sense. So if it's like, that's a, that's a callousness that that, I, that's a different category. But if I'm just feel guilty, I would rather uh, go almost throw myself on the table of mercy (laughs) and just like, okay, just dump that stuff on me. This, that's what I need. Yeah. So uh, I, I would just have a different approach than, than those who struggle with ongoing feelings of unforgiveness. I'm saying, well, that you're actually avoiding the thing that conveys how yeah, forgiven you yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, one of the things I do like about Luther is he said, like, we are in a spiritual battle. And when we come to the table, we find nourishment and refreshment. And so in that sense, it's like, it's actually, it's, it's some level mysteriously, spiritually reviving us Mm -hmm. and giving us fuel to continue into this spiritual battle, which we wage each and every day. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, One thing I find weird, and I don't think this is probably what people are fighting against. They may not know, but like Bill Johnson and Joseph Prince and the word of faith people, they believe that there is something physical that happens with communion toward them. And they literally believe they won't get sick. And so they take communion, if not every week, like every day. Mm-hmm. And you won't die young if you take communion a lot, mm. if you do it in faith. Which we would say that's the wrong. really dumb. Wrong. 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 Don't that's believe very that. very wrong. Um, 
anyway, yeah. I, I, um, well, we are getting kind of long. So I'm trying to figure out, a, you know, if you want to keep learning about this, maybe we could do a second one. I, I think it might be really fun to do. We, I have a fun, like, questions about, uh, like, when did we switch to gra- grape juice? Why they switch to why they switch from wine to juice? When did they go to? 1889. Yeah. Um, uh, why do we take communion every week? Some churches do not. That kind of the stuff. Bible says but, so. But stop, Justin. <laughs> oh, but, you didn't want answers? No, I just... Oh, okay. Um, but 1 Corinthians 11, I do think it might be kind of fun to start by just walking through the end of 10 and the beginning of 11 and talking about what does that mean? That mm. seems to be where a big hiccup comes. And then continuing this conversation of when is it okay as you're doing this self-examination to choose to not partake yeah. and when not. I also... Yeah, and I think have some thoughts, but I could be wrong. And I don't want to end with that. So we'll, uh, we will uh, just postpone that until the next time. Does that sound okay with you guys? Yeah, that sounds good. I want to come okay. back and tell a really good story on the next Ooh. one about a faithful, faithful church on, in another part of the world that takes communion every week with coconut water. And I, like I think, that. And I do, I think they're doing one thing wrong. I like that. Love it. Okay. All right. Well, then we'll see you next time.